Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Tico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another evening where we continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Church of Corinth. We are in chapter 11, and time willing, we will get through the rest of chapter 11. But before we jump into those verses, I just wanted to open up with a bit of a reflection. You know, the first days of fall are suddenly upon us, are they not? And there's something to be said about what the natural seasons have to teach us about the spiritual life, right? And by that, I mean, if we are going to experience new life, we must first experience death, right? Because as the leaves fall and die, so then can that tree bear forth new life in the spring. And so the same can be said, of course, of the spiritual life, right? If we are going to experience new life, we must first die to something. And as I have spoken to it in the past, we really do have to examine whatever it is that that one thing is, huh? <laughs> I mean, we are all attached to certain things. And God calls all of us to die to those certain things. And only until we die to those attachments can we then experience a new life in Christ. And so this is always before us, not only each and every day, but as the seasons remind us each and every season. From one season to the next, we are made to critically reflect upon how the natural world has something to teach us about the supernatural world. That is to say, if creation itself is God's first love letter to man, then that letter has something to teach us about its creator, God. God who is just not creator, but also Father. So we are made to reflect uh, into the rhythm and tenor of seasons so as to appreciate what this great love letter in creation has to teach us about the supernatural life. And of course, here I am talking about the relationship between death and life. And do we not have, of course, the great icon of the crucifix to remind us of what we are talking about now? In the light of our faith in Jesus Christ, <laughs> do we have something more as he died for our sins that we might have life? So death and life is ultimately a great truth of the spiritual life. We have to enter into what the great Fulton Sheen once said, God's arithmetic, where what is perceived to be a negative is actually a positive. Where there might be less, you actually have more, okay? Where something appears to be smaller, it's actually bigger in God's arithmetic. Okay, so as we look around us and we see the, the leaves change colors and die, let us use that as a prism from which to better understand the spiritual life, that if we are going to experience new life in Christ, we must first die to self and those attachments that we have. Okay, all that being said, let us jump back into Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We are in chapter 11, as I noted 
I will go ahead and read verses 21 to 29. So chapter 11, verses 21 to 29. But what anyone dares to boast of, I am speaking in foolishness, I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I am talking like an insane person. I am still more with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, far worse beatings, and numerous brushes with death. Five times at the hands of the Jews I received forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I passed a night and a day on the deep, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own race, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, through hunger and thirst, through frequent fastings, through cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak, and I am not weak, who is led to sin, and am I not indignant? Wow, there's a lot there, my friends, to unpack. So, off the top, we have this continued reflection into his boasting. Now, while insisting that he has the same Jewish heritage as the uh, aforementioned intruding missionaries, he claims to be a superior minister of Christ, whereas the super apostles, as we've been talking about them, right, seem to focus on achievements. Paul, though his own apostolic works are greater, highlights what in these series of verses, in these series of dangers, but his participation in the sufferings of Christ. Now, what is going on here? What is at the heart of this? Well, as he puts it, what anyone dares to boast of, I also dare. Now, his use of the verb dare here echoes his threat in chapter 10, verse 2, that if necessary, he will act boldly. The threat to the spiritual well-being of the Corinthians is reason enough for Paul to act with boldness. You see, my friends, what is on the heart of St. Paul here is his concern for the family of God. And again, as he is a father of so many of these churches and consequently the, the people that make up these churches, his heart is wounded at the disunity, so he aches for unity. Yes, he speaks to all of these dangers that he has undertaken for the sake of the gospel, but as he does so, what does he remind us? What's at the heart of it is who he is as a spiritual father. We have already talked a great deal about how the wayward behavior of some of these Corinthians has affected him. He longs for unity. He longs for peace. And these words, unity and peace, are not to be thrown about in the abstract. No, he puts Christ at the center because Christ is at the center of everything. If we are going to know unity, it can only be in Christ, right? Because what did Jesus Christ say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we are going to know peace, it can only be in Christ. 
because we are not talking once again in the abstract, but in the concrete. Peace is about covenant harmony with God, and we can only have that peace if we contemplate the face of Jesus Christ and know Him intimately. This is what He has been about, and just not this epistle, but certainly in His first epistle to Corinth. So, very important here. Now, there's something else here that I find interesting. He says, I am speaking in foolishness. What does this reveal? Well, St. Paul realizes that boasting exclusively about one's pedigree and accomplishments is folly. Don't tell me that the measure of who you are is where you come from. And don't tell me the measure of who you are is what you've accomplished. I don't care about that. All I care about is who you are in Jesus Christ and your desire to continue to serve Jesus Christ. To fall back into this mindset that your greatness is defined by who your ancestor is or what you've done in the past, that's folly. That's foolishness. Now, am I saying that we are not to hold in the highest regard where we come from? Not at all. In point of fact, you have heard me talk about the opposite, that it is very important to come to understand where we come from so as to better understand who we are, so as to have a better compass to where God is calling us to go. Where God is calling us to go, right? The super apostles, the intruding missionaries, weren't concerned about that. They were just concerned about exclusively their pedigree and the perceived accomplishments that they have performed. All of that, again, for St. Paul is folly. So, Paul then begins by comparing his ethnic pedigree and religious heritage with that of the super apostles, who, again, apparently are taking great pride in these matters. Now, I love what St. Paul does here. He employs three rhetorical questions, to which he replies, in each case, so am I. Now, although these three questions pertain to Jewish identity, Interestingly enough, they are arranged in order of ascending importance. The term Hebrews probably refers here to the bloodlines of these missionaries, and perhaps maybe to the ability to speak Hebrew or Aramaic. Most scholars agree that Paul is claiming that, like the intruding missionaries, he is a pure-blooded Jew born of two Jewish parents. Now, the word Israelites highlights the notion of what? But being members of God's chosen people, right? With all the privileges that this entails, including the covenants, law, temple worship, so on and so forth. Lastly, the phrase descendants of Abraham points to being recipients of that divine promise made, of course, to the great patriarch and father in faith, Abraham himself. So, Paul insists that the super-apostles do not surpass him in regard to uh, their Jewishness, okay? So he's, he's setting this up. And at first glance, it might strike us as a little strange that Paul underscores his Jewish identity, especially given that Christianity and Judaism are, in our own time, two distinct religions. But remember, It is important to appreciate that even after his encounter with the risen Lord and his call to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul still considered himself a Jew, right? 
he regarded his Jewish heritage as an immense gift of God and saw in Jesus the fulfillment of everything God had promised to the Jews. Okay, so he saw his Jewish faith as quintessential to better understanding this new faith, because if you don't understand (laughs) the promise, how can you possibly understand the fulfillment? You must understand one so as to better understand the other. This is why I have talked about in great detail through the years on this program the importance of understanding the Old Testament and the faith that has been passed on through the centuries, because ultimately, again, this is what Jesus Christ fulfills. And really, you can make a case, you can only appreciate the Catholic faith until then, right? Because ultimately, when you start talking about the sacraments, especially the sacrament of the Eucharist, this indeed is the fulfillment of all of the great Old Testament feast days. I talk about it now because it does highlight the point here. Paul is proud of his Jewish faith. Now, it is in connection with Jesus, specifically with being ministers of Christ, that Paul differentiates himself from the super-apostles in response to their claim to be Christ's special envoys. He insists that he is still more hyper, is the Greek there, okay? Essentially, he is saying that he is more super than the super-apostles themselves. The still more hyper, H-Y-P-E-R in the Greek. He is saying he is more super than the super. (laughs) Okay. How can we not think of the Incredibles here? (laughs) For those of you who are familiar with the Incredibles, you know what I'm talking about here because the Incredibles themselves are referred to as supers. One of the underlying storylines is that you can never take the super out of the super. Okay. Once you're a superhero, you're always a superhero. Once you're an incredible, you're always a super. As much as you try to silence the super, the super will always come out. And I was thinking about this earlier today in relationship to the church. You can continue to try to silence the church as it seeks to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ, but the more you try the more super the church will become. What do I mean? Well, what has been the great witness of the church to the teachings of Jesus Christ through the years? Those who have laid down their life for Jesus Christ and his church, right? What did Tertullian once say? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can try to silence the church, drown out uh, the proclamation, but in the end, you can never take the super out of the super. You see, my friends, Jesus Christ calls the church to extraordinary heights, to do extraordinary things. And sometimes men and women come along that lay down their life for the sake of this great vocation. What was I saying earlier about dying to self? To literally lay down your life for the sake of new life. Tertullian says, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, because when one dies, many, many, many come forth out from that seed. So the super that I'm talking about now is one heroically lays down their life for Jesus Christ and how this leads to a greater testimony to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Jesus endowed the church with extraordinary grace in the sacraments, 
And this is why you can never take the super out of the super. Because when we live in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ lives in us, we will achieve great things. And this is what Paul wants us to see. I mean, consider the <laughs> this long list of hardships he lays out. I mean, my goodness, you can start here with verse 24. Five times at the hands of the Jews, I received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I passed a night and a day on the deep, on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own race, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, and toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, through hunger and thirst, through frequent fastings, through cold and exposure. He goes on and on. My dear friends, Paul adapts the, this achievement list not for his own purposes. He does not seek to promote his own achievements and greatness. Rather, he lists the various times he has encountered the threat of death in the course of preaching the gospel in order to reveal the power of God working in him. If he was left to his humanity, he would have failed long ago. And he wants those intruding missionaries to understand, as well as you and I, my friends, that what is super can only come from Christ. And he is more super than the supposed super apostles because of the power of Christ that lives within him. That is why if we want to be super Christians or super Catholics, we need to allow the power of Christ to live within us. Okay? And then, and only then, can we begin to appreciate what's going on here. You know, this list of dangers is uh, pretty extraordinary. Uh, I'm particularly grabbed by him being shipwrecked. I am one who, I don't know, at the sight of a sea or uh, the ocean is just intimidated. <laughs> Seafaring was notoriously dangerous. And as you can well imagine, because St. Paul's means were limited, the ships he boarded were likely not well suited for his passenger safety, right? In fact, on one occasion, as he would spell out here, he spent a heroin 24-hour period, a night and a day, as he describes it, on the deep, where he was probably clutching desperately to a piece of wreckage while waiting to be rescued. Imagine that, my friends. And all for what? But for the gospel. For the gospel. You know, in every age, the church needs men and women who are willing, like St. Paul, to suffer hardship and humiliation for the sake of the gospel. Fortunately, Paul's example has been followed many times over through the centuries, as I was just talking about. Uh, Father Stegman notes the French Jesuit St. Isaac Jobes, who labored in the regions around the Great Lakes in North America. Despite having suffered great enslavement and torture, including the mutilation of some of his fingers, St. Isaac Jogues insisted on returning to work among the Native Americans, a commitment that, of course, led to his martyrdom. Heroic missionary work has taken place 
in extraordinary ways. And just to stay with the Jesuits, I am also reminded of some of the other North American martyrs. I don't know if you've ever heard me tell the story of one particular Jesuit martyr that's recorded. He was evangelizing the the natives in what is today Central America, and uh, they did not take to his preaching, and he too was martyred. And this particular Jesuit was nailed to a stake, was covered in a sweet chocolate, and after he was covered with a sweet chocolate, uh, fire ants were put on him. The kinds of torture that these men had to undergo is just extraordinary. Extraordinary. I mean, think about the, the pain, the excruciating pain that this one particular Jesuit had to go through. That as the fire ants began to devour the sweet chocolate, they would also begin to eat at the flesh. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you would see, and all for the sake of the gospel, right? All for the sake of preaching the gospel, heedless of the cost, right? Because discipleship, true discipleship, genuine discipleship does not calculate the cost. It just goes because God said, go, right? Go therefore and baptize and preach, right? That is the great commissioning. And this is what they did. And it's really important to highlight too that they did this because they know that they were going to have the strength to endure and overcome whatever hardships came their way because of the Holy Spirit, right? That Holy Spirit, which was given to St. Paul, which was given to St. Peter, which was given to all the apostles, is also given to us. We look at the super things that all of these great men and women have done through the years, and we might say, well, that was great for them. No, my friends, we too are called to extraordinary things, great things, heroic, incredible, super things, right? And we can achieve such things in the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus says, I give you the power of the Holy Spirit. The Greek there for power is dynamua. It's the same root to the word dynamite, right? Dynamua. What does dynamite communicate but explosive power? Explosive power. So the Holy Spirit is this explosive power living within us that God wants to essentially release upon the world, right? This is what our life in Christ is about, and this is what our discipleship is about. An an extraordinary vocation that is before us, my friends. Okay, we are running out of time. I will go ahead and read these last few verses and just reflect briefly. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus knows, he who is blessed forever, that I do not lie. At Damascus, the governor under King Eritas guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was lowered in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So verse 30 here functions as a kind of transitional verse, looking both backward and forward. It looks back in that Paul, as he intimated in verse 18, feels he must boast. We saw that He feels compelled to play the super apostles at their own game of boasting because some of the Corinthians have been dazzled by their claims. However, as his hardship list in verses 23 to 29 suggests, he is in fact subverting the game. 
This becomes explicit when Paul announces that he will boast of the things that show his weakness. The intruding missionaries were not going to boast of his weakness. And who boasts of their weakness anyways, right? Everyone wants to puff themselves up. Everyone wants to say, look at me. Everyone wants to play that ostentatious game, that game of showy display so as to attract attention. A true Christian is marked by their willing to boast of their weakness. Don't tell me about all of your great achievements or where you come from. Tell me who you are serving. Tell me about your weaknesses. Now, for Paul, in boasting of his weakness, sets the agenda for the remainder of his boast. Although he can truthfully boast about many things, he steadfastly commits himself to boasting only about his weaknesses. In so many ways, his catalog of sufferings serves to introduce this point, as God has continued both to deliver his servants from brushes with death and to work wonders through his self-giving ministry. And in verse 31, beautifully, he swears that most powerful oath. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus knows, he who is blessed forever, that I do not lie. As he did early in this chapter, my friends, Paul appeals to God's knowledge to guarantee the truth of what he is saying. And as he did at the very beginning of this chapter, he blesses God, the one who has revealed himself as the Father of Jesus. Now, the question that begs to be asked, and we'll close with this point, why does Paul use such a formula oath at this point? Well, on one hand, he wants the Corinthians to take seriously the paradoxical declaration that he will boast only of the things that show his weaknesses. On the other hand, Paul is about to make two audacious claims, that his missionary work provoked the animosity of a king or at least that of a governor, and he was temporarily taken up into paradise. And my friends, this is where we will pick up next time, because at the beginning of chapter 12, we have what would appear to be this kind of ecstatic union. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, is a series of verses that should beguile us and should have us contemplating something new about our faith. And that something new is how God calls all of us into this kind of mystical marriage, this kind of transforming, ecstatic union with God. Again, this just isn't for St. Paul, because St. Paul himself says to you and I, we are called to ask for such gifts. We are to pursue the heights of union with God. Huh? So, some exciting verses that are ahead of us. And with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.